Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty-loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nathaniel Paul Thurston. Mr. Charles COVID Thompson is not here today with us, but he does have COVID. But don't worry, I'm joined by Miss Amanda Griffiths. Amanda, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Nate? I'm great. Much better than Charlie right now. He's down there coughing up a storm and um, he's not even wearing a mask, which means he doesn't care about me or my or my grandma. No, 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 he doesn't. So how long has it been? Oh, gosh. Um, it's it's been it's been a little while. I think it's been a couple months since we last touched base, okay. uh, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. We've been talking back and forth about doing about getting together sometime. And my schedule's been crazy. Your schedule's been crazy. What are you doing these days for people who remember you from like two years ago? And then we had our, right. you know, the famous debate between you and Charlie. Uh, which I moderated the debate, as that well. made me famous. Really, I think famous. we can just kind of track an uptrend. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's where it all started, right there. So, what yeah. are you doing these days? Uh, these days, I am still a PhD student. Um, new news as of this past week is that I am. Uh, I've been a Young Voices contributor, writer, and commentator for the past uh, year now. Um, and I recently uh, became uh, one of their new social mobility fellows, uh, which is very, very cool. Um, it's a six month fellowship where uh, seven other fellows and I, I believe it's seven, are going to be uh, writing stories and um trading ideas, talking with leaders in areas like poverty alleviation and entrepreneurial freedom and consumer choice, um, all of which have become very, very big areas in my writing and my advocacy work. So, Okay, well, congrats on that. And you had a big move. You left California also, which I think we talked about a little bit last time, but how are you enjoying it? Yeah, Um, it's I'm definitely... Madison is, uh, it's a Chicago suburb. So that's what I tell myself and it doesn't quite feel city-esque enough. Um, but give her a second. Now she's back. Hey, I don't know what happened. Uh, but my apologies. Yeah, no, I was, I was saying that, um, you know, California, Los Angeles, that area has never recovered from COVID quite. And I don't really mean the virus and policies and the attitudes and the sort of general, standoffishness which is really sad as a as someone who loves california and believes in its potential do you think it's eventually going to spark a change in california and californians or are they just going to keep going the way they're going i mean i think it's going to spark a change in everyone but i think it's going to be slow going um it definitely has already sparked change in in some um just across the board so i'm seeing different states adapt in different ways on different uh there are some refreshing developments and some i think people are 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 getting tired of constantly being virtual of constantly being isolated uh that is my observation and i'm cautiously optimistic about that okay well i like the cautious optimism at least so you uh you You've got a new piece out at townhall.com. And uh, I wanted to tell you, I appreciate all the puns. And with everything that you've had going on, you've kept grinding it out. 
And uh, so we appreciate that. Sorry, there's another coffee pun. But you got this piece out about uh, about Starbucks and their union. Yes. And we just did a whole episode about some stuff going on with unions yesterday. So I wanted to get your synopsis on the piece. And then I want to talk to you about the libertarian position on this matter. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm a good representative of the libertarian position on this matter. If I'm wearing my Rush shirt, by the way, as every good libertarian knows, the band Rush wrote the trees. So you know that I just wrote an article about unions if I'm wearing my Rush shirt. Um, this article uh, has tons of coffee puns. Yeah. And it, it's called uh, Biden's NLRB wants to roast Starbucks over labor allegations, but it's workers who are getting burned. Mm. Uh, I literally inserted all the coffee puns during my last draft pass. And I thought my editors were going to take it out, take them out. And they did not. Oh, no, they Oops. love that stuff. No. Oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, so this takes on the issue of union decertification, which is a kind of in the weeds phrase. Essentially, what it means is that when a union has been authorized to act as a group of workers bargaining representative, right? Uh, so been effectively uh, in play for a, for a year, but a first contract hasn't been reached. What workers can do is they can file something called a decertification position. It's sort of like an exit break for workers. It's, it's a protective mechanism for them. They don't like the way that things are going. What they can do is say, we actually don't want this union here anymore. We want another mode of bargaining. Maybe we want to represent ourselves. Maybe we just want to, you know, find another union, anything like that. They'll file a decertification petition. In theory, what that does is that then kickstarts the decertification election process. So it's a democratic process. The workers vote on whether they want to keep the union or not. But there's been a series of changes in labor policy that allows the National Labor Relations Board to just cut any decertification petition off of the pass. Unions can file what are called blocking charges if they don't like the fact that a group of workers has filed a decertification petition and they can alert the NLRB. And if the NLRB says, or if the NLRB basically decides at its discretion, okay, we are going to accept these blocking charges. Decertification process is over. And they need to have cause, but there's no oversight as to whether this cause is legit. So the charitable read in Starbucks case is that Starbucks has, here's another pen that I used <laughs> in the article, yes, fallen into hot water with regard to some unfair labor allegations. This is true as a national corporation, but that is sort of getting it backwards because again, as I say in the article, if Starbucks is in the wrong, for denying workers the freedom to, to, to pursue their preferred mode of organization, bureaucrats and big labor, right, these mega unions that don't represent the interests of these specific workers, why are bureaucrats and big labor in the right for doing the same thing of which they are accusing Starbucks? This is so one of the things that bothers me about unions is that there seems to be a 
automatic baseline assumption that whatever they do, their motives are pure and for the worker and they wouldn't be greedy and they wouldn't be corrupt. Uh, but anything that the corporation does is always out of greed and corruption. And I think that that's a pretty unfair uh, baseline to set for them because these are just human beings also. And, and for the workers to want to leave the union or decertify and for the NLRB to come in and say that they, they can't do it. It makes me think they're probably just working on behalf of their friends that run workers United. Is that the case? I mean, I don't know personally what's going on at workers United. I don't know personally what's going on at Starbucks. Um, but I will say in my own experience with unions, and I've had some close experience with unions, um, it is really difficult for a giant conglomerate union. Unions have effectively become what they accused, and in many cases, rightly initially, those big corporations of the past of being those big exploitative corporations mega conglomerates of being when unions first took shape in the US. They need to adopt those same modes. And they also need to convince the public that that's what the corporate entity still looks like. It's not. Fortunately, workers are becoming much more independent and much more powerful in many, many industries. Things are happening that wouldn't have been conceivable back when unions first took shape in the U.S. Your people get hired because of their individual skills, personalities, and people are increasingly able to be self-employed. People are able to be their own boss. This is something that unions should embrace, but because unions have a very stagnant, entrenched business model, really. They rely on convincing the public and convincing workers that workers are victims, that people's nine to five is a nine to five and can't be something that gives them fulfillment and meaning. The only way they can find fulfillment and meaning in that nine to five is in organized labor. Uh, is is in is is in retaliating against their employer, and so they have to fight back against self-employment. They have to fight back against all of these ways that workers can be independent and can be valued for who they are as people and be valued for their values. For me, it is one of the hugest problems that contributes to some of the most toxic incentive, you know, misalignments in, in our policy today. It's, it's interesting because on one hand they could say, well, you're not going to get that fulfillment from a nine to five working for the man. They're taking advantage of you. But then on the other, they also go after gig workers or freelance workers or people who want to be self-employed. And uh, it, it seems like their answer coincidentally, is that the only way you're going to find this is if you're part of this collective union and they're collectively right. bargaining, which is a convenient position for them to have. Well, and if you look at many of the, in particular, California policies or, or attempted policies, 
um, these are policies that kind of try to structure. And in New York, it's the same way. Um, and I think that the PRO Act kind of looks, uh, looks a little bit like this too. It tries to make self-employment and independent contracting increasingly into a nine to five type gig. And this is for people who want, again, this was a pun I wrote in an Uber <laughs> article, want an exit ramp, um, want an exit ramp from corporate life, want an exit ramp maybe from union politics. And, you know, if workers want to unionize, let's say that the Starbucks workers do want to unionize, they just don't want to be represented by Workers United. Maybe they want to have a smaller union. Maybe they want to have a more compact, more individualized union. They should be able to do that. And right now, because of these weird policy changes, these prefer and these give preference to and advantages to big unions, big labor, just like policies of the past. Um, would give would give preference to big corporations. I do have to take a take a second just to point out uh, a pun that I think uh, honestly you're, it was missed that you need to add oh, back in. And Magoo asked Magoo pun? asked if the problem was grande, venti, or large, and uh, which what size problem would you say this is? <laughs> uh, this is a. a Double shots, uh, double shot, extra, extra whip foam. <laughs> I, I don't. I got foam in there. Yeah, I, I did, Magoo, yeah. Magoo. I did. I did get a retweet where someone said this is a venti problem. So according to someone on Twitter, it's a venti problem. Okay. All right. I just want to make sure we're not leaving any puns out. It's important, you know. Of course, of course. All right. There were uh, there are two different directions I was considering going. Um, one of them, one thing I've talked about for a while, uh, is that people need to find a way to find meaning and purpose in the jobs that they have. And, uh, something we've talked about for a while that whatever job that you name in a free market society, if, as long as you're not working for the government, uh, on, on stolen money, uh, you are providing value to someone that they think is more valuable than the money that they have. And whatever that thing is, you should find meaning and fulfillment in that uh, because mm -hmm. you provided a service or, or a product to someone, whether you're working at McDonald's or Starbucks or, or whatever the job is that people come up with when you talk about this, um, that person needed food or they needed expensive coffee or whatever it was. And you should be able to find some type of meaning in, uh, in doing that job. And I don't know. Do you think that's something that's missing right now for people? It isn't. Well, I mean, I think people convince themselves that it's missing for them. And I think in some industries it is, in some jobs it is. Um, for me, I actually really always loved food service and I miss working in food service. Um, I have loved it every single time, um, including the grind, including, <laughs> um, including the parts that, you know, uh, food service workers commiserate about, um, you know, in the back of house, I've always loved it. And there is dignity in all work. Unfortunately, yes, there are always employers um 
who do not treat their workers fairly in any number of ways. These are individual problems. The, uh, these are, for the, for in large part, these are problems that are specific to a corporation or they're problems specific to a particular relationship between a specific employer and a specific employee. And these need to be addressed on a very individual level for the most part. Uh, again, I'm not sure if I'm a great representative of the uber libertarian position because I do see a place for organized labor, but my sense of what that would look like is incredibly holistic and it's incredibly individualized. I don't think it should be forced on people. And I think that a lot of problems that in the past could only be resolved through labor organization are in fact better resolved uh, through individual or small group uh, actions. Yeah, my my biggest, I basically have that same position. I think people should be able to join unions and I think that's fine. I don't think they should be forced to join the unions. And then my next step is that if you want to fire people and that means that you fire all the unionized people, I think that you should also be able to do that if you have employees that will come in and replace them. Why would you not be able to do that? Uh, if, if enough people have joined that union and you only have workers in a union pool to pull from, then, then that's something you have to deal with in that market that those workers have voluntarily agreed uh, to join and, and do that, but none of it should be forced. I, I think, honestly, we're getting to the point where there are fewer and fewer risks with that take, again, because of the rise of the gig economy, because of the increased possibilities of independent work. Um, it's always a cost-benefit analysis. And I certainly think employers should have more freedom than they do today to decide, you know, what, what am I cool with in terms of my workers organizing? What am I not? When I look at the worker side, and that's really where I try to focus. I think workers should have much more freedom in terms of what they decide with respect to their unions. Right to work is a great concept. A lot of times it's conceptual only. These policies are being weaponized explicitly by unions against employees' right to work. So on paper, employees can have the right to work, the right to be part of a union, the right to leave a union, but if you're able to be backed into a corner once a union takes shape at your corporation, you don't really have the right to work in that traditional sense that we typically use the phrase. You're part of the union. You're tied into it. I, uh, I wanted to bring up two things that we talked about yesterday um, because we just did our union episode uh, yesterday. I wanted to get your thoughts on them real quick. One of them had to do with a yellow trucking company uh, who uh, is has filed for bankruptcy. They've been around for 100 years now. Uh, they pointed to the union uh, being one of the main reasons that they ended up having to file for bankruptcy. They did take a $700 million loan during the COVID pandemic. Uh, to keep their business going, but that involved them trying to restructure their company and they weren't able to restructure their company because that involved firing people and decreasing hours and 
not raising pay as much as was necessary, things like that. Essentially, the union blocked them from doing their restructuring. And the other thing was the United Auto Workers right now are currently asking for what equates to a 46% pay raise uh, for the UAW workers for the big three auto companies. Yes. And they are citing uh, the CEO's 40% pay raise as reason that the workers should also get an equivalent of the same raise. Of course, you know, that drives me nuts. Uh, because they're using how many CEOs do they have three and how many individual employees do they have uh, there are well just for GM they have 167,000 employees and then you go to Ford and you have Chrysler also you're talking 300,000 employees yes I know where you're going this increase would cost those companies upwards of two to three billion dollars and the increase for the CEOs was somewhere around 30 million dollars so the math don't washes add up. out. <laughs> it was, yeah, basically the same thing. But now we're at this point where we're using the same uh, Bernie Sanders CEO pay raise argument, and it's made it all the way up to the president of the UAW union threatening to strike if they don't get this pay raise that equals how much CEO pay went up over that amount of time. And... This is this is driving me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. UAW. Um, I mean, at least they're they're talking about GM now. Um, UAW comprises a really, really counterintuitive and, and, and kind of random set of, of workers. If I'm not mistaken, UAW was helping um, and I want to make sure that I get this right. So I'll fact check myself on this and I'll correct myself if I'm wrong. I believe UAW was uh, was helping to lead negotiations during the uh, University of California grad students mm. strike. Um, I think you're right on that. that pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not exactly the same type of area, but OK. Yeah. <sighs> This this doesn't really make sense. And in particular, I think UAW knows that this is not sensical. This is not logical. Um, these are these are tactics designed to get public attention. And unfortunately, they can give false hope to employees. They can be deceptive toward employees and for employees that say, you know, I actually, I don't want to strike. Um, it can really, really put them in a difficult bind. Uh, and it puts a lot of people in an untenable position all because of publicity stunts, publicity stunt bargaining demands. And it's really unfair. It is one of the most deceptive things, well, one <laughs> unfortunately. The, one yeah. of the, it, it ties back to something you said when we first started. Uh, an issue I see with this is that it leaves the workers in a constant state of never feeling satisfied, even if they get a 20% pay raise 
uh, out of this negotiation. Well, they wanted what equated to a 46% pay raise. They're trying to go to a 32-hour work week instead of a 40-hour work week. And even if there are negotiations and there's concessions on this, well, the workers have been thinking that they were going to get this initial bargaining chip that they used. And now even if they get what it ends up being a pretty sweet deal, they're never happy. And it was the same story. It's with, just a with constant the UC state of wanting more strength. all the time. It was the same story. Yeah. And it, that's, that's what, that's, that's what perpetuates their business model. They will, the, you know, you, and not to pick on, well, maybe a little bit to pick on, <laughs> on UAW, but this is a common union tech, this common big labor tactic. I will say I'll distinguish promise the moon and make sure that it's a promise that can't quite be delivered on. So that then workers will say, we almost got it. We almost got it. And these, these big corporations, these these black leggers, whatever, uh, made it so that we only got half of what we were entitled to. And we need to continue. we, We need to continue. With with this with this union because it's our only hope it's our only way out it's like an abusive relationship mm-hmm. I can't stress enough how much it is like the the big corporations especially of the past the old the old entrenched the old ossified corporate model that unfortunately is really going out of style and people are rejecting it unions can't abide by that they're practicing those same. T- tactics they need to convince you that so are businesses mm-hmm. and it it also see i see unions as uh, small governments or big governments in some cases because uh, another way that this works out for them is they make these big promises they only get half of it and then how do we make sure we get all of it next time you should probably give the union more power you might want to give them more dues. They probably needed a little bit more lobbying money. They probably need a little bit, a little bit more bargaining power. And next time they'll be able to get everything that you're entitled to. And, and they never just, they never quite get it except for they continue to get more and more power. And so well, yeah, like, a government, and you see this like a government, it works out for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see this bureaucratic capture, right? You see, uh, it's interesting. Corporations used to be the, uh, the, 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 the bad actors in bureaucratic capture. And to an extent, they, they still are. But in this particular case, uh, you've got unions that, are, that have captured the NLRB and that are essentially making it so that policies serve them, not the individual worker. And that is the problem. This is not about wanting to make sure that workers stay put down or workers stay in their place. This is wanting to make sure that workers can be lifted up. And it's now unions that are doing what the big bosses of the past used to do. All right. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap up. I know it's kind of a short episode, but to be fair, it was your fault. Uh, It was my fire alarm's fault. And there is audio (laughs) evidence of that. There is. We played it for the live group, the Fed Haters Club at uh, joingml.com, just so I can get that uh, little advertisement in there for everyone. Uh, But why don't you tell everyone where they can find more of your stuff, where they can follow what you any random thoughts that you have where they can go to see those. 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ajax the Griff. And you can also uh, find my work uh, at Young Voices, um, where I've got a page there. And uh, you, can, you can follow all of my latest hits and updates there. All right. Amanda, it's been fun. Next time we'll do a full length episode. We just make sure that you won't have any fire drills uh, just beforehand. And we still need you to come back and talk about this presidential race that we have coming up because uh, love to man. It's 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 heating up. And uh, well, honestly, it's heated up to the point where I've stopped paying attention to it because it's too annoying to pay attention to anything. But uh, I'd love to talk. I'll, about I'll it. just I'll give you I'll give you a little teaser. I'll give you a little teaser. Mm-hmm. I have always been a closet Chris Christie fan in some respects. Okay. Not that I agree with every single one of his policies, but I've always had a secret soft spot for Chris Christie. Okay. All right. That's Doesn't mean I would vote for him. Yeah. I just, I like watching him. Huh. We'll have to dig into that just a little bit more. Just a, yeah. there you go. Everyone's got just a little teaser. We'll come back and figure out what the heck it is about Chris Christie that makes you like it. (laughs) Cheers. All right, Amanda. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Nate. Bye, live group.